Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Today we continue our focus on the significant new bankruptcy rules proposed by the Bankruptcy Rules Committee of the Judicial Conference of the United States, specifically the amendments to Rule 3001 requiring more creditor disclosure in consumer cases. The proposals are controversial and elicited an unusually high volume of written comments and testimony at a rare public session. The official comment period ended February 16th, though the committee is expected to reevaluate the proposals based on the comments received. Unless revised by the coming rules process, this new rule, among others, will go into effect on December 1, 2011. With me to talk about the proposed rule is Alan Beckett, a partner at Beckett & Lee in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and a member of the ABI Board of Directors. She's also a co-chair of ABI's Consumer Bankruptcy Committee. She represents national creditors, including debt buyers, in consumer bankruptcy cases, and she recently testified on the proposed rule before the Rules Committee. Welcome, Alan, to ABI Podcast. Thank you, Sam, for inviting me to be here. First, um, can you describe what proposed Rule 3001 would do? Sure. Um, the proposed amendments to Rule 3001, according to the committee note that will accompany the rule, uh, if it is approved, are designed to prescribe with greater specificity the supporting information required to accompany a proof of claim and the consequences of failing to include the required documents. Uh, specifically, uh, newly added to Rule 3001C is a requirement that when a claim is based on an open-end or revolving consumer credit agreement, the last account statement sent to the debtor prior to the filing of the petition shall also be filed with the proof of claim. In addition, if the debtor is an individual and the claim includes, in addition to the principal amount, interest, fees, expenses, or other charges incurred pre-petition, an itemized statement of the interest, fees, expenses, or other charges shall also be filed with the proof of claim. The, the proposals also uh, seem to allow uh, objections even and even impose sanctions such as attorney's fees to claims based on a lack of documentation, even when there may not be a dispute about the amount actually owed by the debtor. Now, rules, uh, proposals typically arise from cases that uh, sometimes present the courts or the bankruptcy system with a problem. Um, in this case, as best you can determine, what, what problem do you think the Rules Committee is trying to solve with a proposal? And I, I understand that there are other rules proposals, uh, specifically 3002, which we're, we're not going to address today, which uh, I think uh, address a concern about uh, creditors uh, showing up in court on foreclosure matters without proper documentation to validate the claim. So putting aside that sort of mortgage issue, what problem do you think the committee is, is trying to address with these new disclosure requirements? Oh, that's interesting that you say that, Sam, because it's hard to put aside the mortgage issue because, you know, although Judge Weedoff's podcast refers to the rule as being a response to the large volume of consumer accounts, uh, which are sold by banks to debt, to debt purchasers and the resulting proofs of claim that are thereafter filed, um, 
exception appears to be the claims are filed for these purchase debts without adequate documentation, which therefore results in difficulty uh, to the debtor in determining if the claim is legitimate, the basis for the claim, and the age of the debt. I don't necessarily agree with that assessment because uh, proofs of claim are required to state the basis for the claim, the account number, and a new section requires the claimant to state how, how the debtor may have scheduled the claim. So a debt purchaser, for example, would file a claim that lists the name of the original creditor right there on the face of the claim. Now, I have read the reports uh, from the committee leading up to these proposals and through their deliberation process, and it's clear that the original problem that the committee was tasked to address with to address was mortgage claims and post-petition fees and charges added to mortgages during the life of a Chapter 13 plan. Now, unsecured creditors seem to have been swept up in the rule proposal that requires claims to be itemized to show principal, interest, fees, and the like. And it was only later in the process, as a result of a suggestion by a bankruptcy judge who had perceived a problem with claims filed by debt purchasers, that the committee added a requirement that claims based on revolving or open-end credit include the last statement sent to the debtor. So what I found is that the committee proposed rules originally intended to deal with mortgage claims where there was an identified problem. Uh, there is plenty of case law out there um, that, that really examines mortgage companies' procedures and specifically their procedures in bankruptcy um, and applied those rules intended to deal with those problems to all claims without consideration of whether the other types of claims suffered from similar problems or whether the proposals would resolve any identified problems. Now, several large claim filers testified at the hearing on February 5th that the amount of objections that they receive versus the amount of claims that they file is very, very small in the low single-digit percentages. So while there are complaints about the putative lack of documentation attached to claims, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that those claims are false or otherwise invalid. So in your experience, uh, as, a, as a practical matter, do uh, open-end uh, creditors, uh, particularly the bulk debt buyers uh, that we're talking about here, uh, do they routinely file uh, overstated claims in consumer cases? Not to my knowledge. Um, uh, and I can only speak for my, for my firm, but we are very, very careful to make sure that the claim is filed for the petition date balance and, and not any uh, the sale date balance or some kind of post-petition balance. Um, I think that um, there's sort of some anecdotal or just commentary out there that this is happening, but I have not read any cases and uh, nor have any practices such as that which you described have been shown to me um, that would lead me to think that there's any type of problem. I think what happens sometimes is that debtors' accounts are charged off well before the petition date, and for example, a claim may have a $5,000 balance on it at the time it's charged off, but the debtor may file uh, bankruptcy two years later. Right. Well, the balance two years later is not going to be $5,000, right. so the debtor you know, may think that it's larger than it should be, when it really isn't. Right, right. Now, you mentioned that in your experience, the percentage of claims that are objected to is very small. Uh, on the other hand, 
uh, under current law, is there much of an incentive for debtors to object to claims? Well, there are certain circumstances which, under which it would be beneficial to a debtor to relieve himself or herself of unsecured debt. Uh, a debtor who, uh, whose liquidation analysis would show that, that the debtor has to pay a certain amount of money to unsecured creditors uh, you know, through the plan might benefit by getting rid of, rid of some unsecured debt. Or a debtor with an unfeasible plan may benefit from getting rid of some unsecured debt. Um, in a Chapter 7 case, a debtor with a surplus plan uh, would benefit from getting rid of some unsecured debt because money that would have gone to that creditor is now going to go back to the debtor. So I'm not condemning debtors' attorneys generally, but my experience with this litigation is that uh, under circum certain circumstances, it can be to a debtor's benefit to object to claims uh, you know, on this familiar insufficient documentation basis and, you know, see who doesn't show up and see what the result might be. I have rarely seen a debtor penalized for filing an objection uh, solely based on the fact that a claim lacks documentation. So the system really doesn't have a disincentive for a debtor to try if they need to. What's the uh, practical effect on the claims of debt buyers, firms that may buy thousands of claims in bulk from the original creditor, particularly with respect to the last account statement requirement that you mentioned? Well, you know, there was testimony at the recent hearing from several debt buyers. Um, the debt buyers do not obtain account documentation, and by that I mean paper, uh, when they purchase accounts. Uh, they purchase large volumes of, of accounts, you know, on a periodic basis over and over from the same from the same creditors. They also don't get uh, the account balances necessarily broken down into some type of an itemization. Um, so what the result of the committee's proposals is that it would fundamentally alter the way the debt purchasing business functions. And the market may not be able to adjust its practices in order to meet the committee's proposals. Um, and at the very least, the market for uh, purchased debt would have to substantially change its practices, which today are essentially con uh, conducted electronically. So the practical effect for debt buyers, and, and I have to say, even for creditors, because if you examine um, the original creditors' proofs of claim that are out there, you will find that, that many of them are very similar to the claims that are filed by the debt buyers. The claims are accompanied by a summary with some information on it. They're not necessarily accompanied by an account statement all the time. So, you know, it's not, it's not only a debt buyer, debt buyer issue, but really the practical effect and what, and what really um, concerns me is that claims will be disallowed based solely on the failure to attach these new required documentation. And although that is not part of the penalty provision of the proposed rule, the reality is that if a creditor cannot defend the validity of its claim by producing documentation in a hearing to show the judge that the claim is valid, then my experience tells me that the claim will be disallowed. And the monetary sanction provision has the potential to become an incentive to object to otherwise undisputed debts to, you know, number one, secure their disallowance, number two, obtain a monetary recovery for the debtor. You know, so as I view it, the rules, the rules will pose a real shift in the balance 
that, that currently exists between debtors and creditors under the rule as it operates today. So even though uh, there's nothing in Rule 502, for example, or, uh, or I'm sorry, Section 502, that would uh, seem to require this outcome, are you suggesting that uh, you would get a kind of uh, disallowance uh, outcome uh, just as a matter of sort of a bootstrap argument that uh, the, the failure to provide the documentation uh, would lead courts to uh, disallow the claim? Absolutely, and, and, it, and it happens today. Some courts out there will disallow a claim for failure to, to include supporting documentation or to include enough supporting documentation, even though the debtor does not dispute the validity of the debt. Now, that is a minority position, but it's definitely out there. And, and the reason I'm so confident that this is going, that this would be the practical result, is that Rule 3001F um, operates to give a proof of claim that is properly documented prima facie validity. And the result of that is that a debtor who brings an objection to a claim that is prima facie valid has the burden of production on the objection. If your claim is not properly documented and you do not receive prima facie validity and a debtor objects to your claim, the burden of production is now on the creditor as the party that has to come forward. Well, the sanction provision here will prevent the creditor from coming forward with the evidence that it needs to support its claim. And as a result, the creditor has failed to meet its burden of proof, and the claim will very likely be disallowed. And did I hear you suggest that uh, some courts uh, have already uh, de facto uh, adopted uh, the rule as uh, essentially a local rule that creditors are, are now obliged to follow in those minority of courts? Yes, actually, uh, several courts uh, have adopted the proposed rules as part of their local rules. We had very, very little notice. Uh, as far as I can tell, there were only a very short notice period that these rules were going to become effective December 1st. And right after December 1st, we started to receive objections to our claims because they were not itemized and because they did not include um, the last statement. So, um, you know, I did hear Judge Weedoff talking yesterday about how the federal rulemaking process is a three-year process, but we've got some courts fast-tracking these rules and implementing them um, preemptively. And that's causing a, a great concern to my clients because of the sanction provision. Some of my clients have uh, been very reluctant to continue to file claims in these courts because under their current business practices, they're not able to provide the document, documentation re you know, required under the local rules. Um, if it was a three-year process, you know, they have a little, they've got that time to, you know, decide how they want to continue to operate and maybe change their practices. But these fast-tracking, this fast-tracking of these local rules is really presenting a, a concern to our clients. Have you uh, had a situation uh, where, in terms of uh, this fast-tracking, as you described, of the, of the rule via local rules, 
where the sanctions have involved the attorney fee provision that's in the proposed rule? Well, in the cases that we've had so far, the hearings have not come up yet. So mm -hmm. we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, there is a provision in the rule, though, uh, the sanction provision, that um, excuses noncompliance if noncompliance was substantially justified or is harmless. Mm -hmm. So there, there's certainly an argument that when a rule is um, enacted with very little notice um, and you were not aware of it, that you, know, you were substantially justified maybe in, in not complying. Um, and there's also an argument that if the debtor has scheduled the debt as undisputed and is only um, objecting to the claim based on documentation, you know, that the failure of the uh, to attach a documentation is a harmless error. So I think in these early stages of, this, of these uh, implementation of these local rules, as happens other times with other local rules, there's probably going to be some degree of leniency while everyone kind of gets up to speed. But as I said, we have not had hearings on those cases yet, so uh, that is still to be determined. Right. And there's obviously a risk involved. Uh, in being the uh, the test case in in you know particular districts, there is, and that is why once we learned of this and and notified our clients, they became very concerned about whether or not they should continue to file claims in these jurisdictions, which I really do not think is is the committee's intent. I do not think the committee intends for claims to be disallowed. I don't think they intend for creditors to be frightened away from the claims from. Um, participating in the bankruptcy process, but right now that's kind of where, where it's heading. Right. I, I agree um, in, in terms of what the committee's aim is, um, but uh, it, it does introduce a uh, high degree, it seems, uh, of disuniformity in something which is supposed to be uh, a uniform uh, bankruptcy system. Uh, that's just a rhetorical point, I guess. What, uh, what is your, can you offer a uh, prediction uh, based on your experience about uh, what you think the next steps or ultimate uh, resolution uh, of this particular rule uh, might be? Sam, I wish I had the answer to that. Um, one thing I can say is I have been doing this litigation for nine or ten years because these objections really started to uh, ramp up when debt buying started to really ramp up. And I have seen creditors' practices over time get better and better and better. Um, and despite the criticism that creditors receive for being, uh, you know, cheap and lazy, um, that's really not the case. They're doing the best they can within a system where they're losing money to begin with. They're doing the best they can to automate processes, to streamline processes, um, and I don't really think that's, that's really recognized. Um, as for the future, I was very impressed with the committee's willingness to listen to the witnesses, to entertain um, what they had to say, to ask very thoughtful questions, uh, to assure the witnesses that all commentary would be read and considered very thoroughly. Um, and so uh, one of the suggestions, my, my, my most important suggestion to the committee was that they give this further study and further thought as to whether... There really is a problem with unsecured creditors. Do debtors really need documentation if they've listed their debt? Is there really some nefarious contingent out there filing false claims? Or are we just trying to enforce a rule for enforcement's sake? 
when the rule maybe is not was important when it was enacted, but maybe is not really that relevant in, in these days of electronic transactions. So I have implored the committee to give further study to this, and, and I, I have every confidence that they will do that. I agree. On that uh, optimistic note, we'll uh, note that uh, we'll continue to uh, follow it uh, uh, closely. Uh, Alan, thanks again for offering your views on the rules proposal and for being our guest today on ABI podcast. That's uh, all the time we have for today. We have more than 75 podcasts online at abiworld.org for listening or download. And until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.